0: Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. As always, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not medical advice. Please consult with your own medical team before making interventions or changes in your own regimen. As difficult as it can be to find providers, and we recognize that, that this podcast is just informational. Today, we are very excited to have as our guest, Joe Southo. Jo is an independent occupational therapist and an expert patient with many years of experience in self-managing complex health conditions. She began her working life in the sport and outdoor adventure industries. After being diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, she returned to study and gained a BSc degree in occupational therapy from the University of Northampton. She was named Changemaker Student of the Year in 2016 for bringing a wheelchair basketball to the university, volunteering with the Hypermobility Spectrum Association, the HMSA, and keeping up with her blog. And we'll include a link to her blog and her social media pages in the episode notes if you're interested in learning more. Her final placement also made her the UK's first OT to work in the travel and tourism industry. And she was a pioneer in remote placement work as well. She finished her degree in September 2016 after five years, thousands of miles of travel, 57 nights in four different hospitals, five different A&Es, some more than once, four ambulance trips, countless hospital and general practitioner appointments, three work placements, and living in student accommodation, hotels, and friends' houses. She's been self-employed working via video chat since her qualification, and she still volunteers for the Hypermobility Syndromes Association, and she's on their medical advisory board as well. Joe, hello. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to be speaking with you.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's really exciting.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's start at the top, as we often do on this podcast. What's your sort of introduction to hypermobility? How did you learn about it? And how did it first manifest for you?
1: So I was diagnosed at 19. I had a very, very long history of falling over things, injuring myself, sprained ankles, back injuries, just you name it. And it was all put down to the fact that I was a little bit of an adrenaline junkie and really enjoyed like dance, rock climbing, that kind of thing. This was just as I was taking my A-levels, I fell off the kind of asymmetric bars at gymnastics and dislocated my left like radius and ulna in my elbow in opposite directions and then had a massive allergic reaction to morphine and got like rushed quite quickly to A&E. Fast forward a couple of months and I sent myself off to physiotherapy because I wasn't happy with the fact that my elbow still felt really stiff and I hadn't got the right range of motion. And I showed the physiotherapist and the physiotherapist said, well, that is the full range of motion. Like, what's the problem? And I said, yeah, but my good elbow goes backwards. So I'm used to having like a wider range of motion. And the physiotherapist basically said, what we need to do is seize up the rest of you to match the bad elbow and asked if I would just take off my jeans, went through some stretches and told me that I should definitely go home and Google hypermobility syndromes. So I did. And suddenly my entire life made sense. And an awful lot of my, you know, my mum's family's medical histories made sense. And after that, yeah, it was just a couple of GP appointments and then a rheumatologist. And we went from there. But yeah, it was an awful lot of light bulb moments back to back for a very long time there.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And just to kind of underline and unpack some things, because there's some major trends that I've seen that run through the hypermobile community. And definitely a lot of those light bulb moments when people first learn about hypermobility can be such an eye opening perspective. And it's so interesting how kind of hidden from the world it is that it's like this kind of side body of knowledge that the general public isn't aware of, even hypermobile people themselves having lived with it. Many people have hypermobility in their families. And it just seems if it's all you know, it it is kind of the norm for a lot of people. And there's still just a complete kind of lack of uh, knowledge and awareness of it in the general public and even around many medical practitioners, maybe even a significant majority. And um, it's interesting how you mentioned you were an adrenaline junkie. I think that's definitely the case for a lot of hypermobile people, kind of seeking that stimulation, the proprioceptive input, all of that. You know, I speak to a lot of people who are really into um, adrenaline type sports of one type or another, you know, skiing or dance, ballet, all different kinds of things. And interesting, too, that you your kind of path into hypermobility was this injury because of all the people that I've spoken to and I've spoken to so many hypermobile people over the years, it seems like for the vast majority of them, they either had an injury or an infection or some kind of traumatic experience that kind of set them off on a downturn, like a, a negative uh, health spiral, having a lot of symptoms. And then that's how they ended up learning about their hypermobility. So definitely very interesting to hear all of that and the experience of feeling like your entire life finally made sense, feeling about the hypermobility. I definitely had that experience as well when I first learned about it. I describe it like getting the script to a play in the middle of the third act, like being like, Oh, okay, now I kind of get what's (laughs) going on here. Like, I'm just bumbling through being like, what's going on? Why? Why can't I do this? Or why am I having this weird symptom? And then finally, like getting this explanation that is so helpful. And so I'm glad that you kind of finally got that explanation. And, and you also mentioned that allergic reaction to morphine and you know allergic reactions you know sensitivities to medications of all different types are also something i hear about quite a lot in this community and you know a lot of possible explanations for that like the mast cell activation component could be a lot there but it certainly seems like something that happens quite quite commonly in this community so yeah thanks so much for sharing that story and um it's so great how you have used your knowledge and experience with being a hypermobile person and having All these experiences, like your life story from the intro is just really compelling and you've been through so much. And it's so great that you've used your knowledge and expertise to learn ways to not only improve your own life and self-manage, but then pass that on and work with others with this condition and particularly in the occupational therapy field, which has a lot to offer for hypermobile people. Could you give us a bit of a brief overview of what your occupational therapy practice has been like and kind of what types of patients you work with and what kinds of things you help them with?
1: Absolutely. So my work, as I've said, as you said, is entirely online. So I work via video chat, email, social media, that kind of thing. The Benefit of that is that means I can work with a much wider range of people. And it, you know, saves me an awful lot of energy as well. So the idea for that actually came about while I was still at university. So for an assignment I was researching how fatigue management is taught and it's an area and it's still an area of healthcare that I feel is just absolutely full of hypocrisy. So we drag people in for 4-hour long meetings where they sit uncomfortably and don't get breaks to tell them how to not get uncomfortable and that they need to take breaks and then just expect that not to cause flare-ups and that people aren't going to feel terrible afterwards. So I really felt like there had to be a better way of teaching fatigue management in particular. So for an assignment, I designed a kind of remote working video chat version of fatigue management patient education. And when I qualified, kind of when I finished it sort of, well, i had done the legwork already. So why not actually make it happen? So in the time it took my professional registrations and like certificates and things to come through and the insurance to get in and all that stuff. I just spent that time basically writing resources and creating uh, the handouts and the script for what I wanted to do. And I started off by offering my pacing masterclass, which I'm still offering. It has been updated a few times since then, but it's, you know, the foundation's still there and it's it's all via video chat. You don't even need to get out of bed. And it's just a really nice way of teaching kind of the core skills for things like pacing, decision-making how you kind of break activities up that sort of thing and from there I just kind of built it into like a network of strategies and skill sets that people can learn with the eventual aim of creating a health toolkit so your health toolkit is all of your coping strategies your your knowledge your patient education your understanding about your condition but also things like communication skills and self-advocacy skills and then bits of equipment so it might be jar openers or ring splints or it might be a really expensive wheelchair, or it might be a wet room. And then you've got your people. So it might be like friends, family members, carers, support workers, your GP, your physiotherapist, all that kind of stuff. So my aim is basically to guide people through the process of developing a health toolkit for themselves so that even if we can't miraculously make your condition any less complicated, we can lessen the impact it has on your life. And now allow people to go out and do things without fear of the fact that their own cooperative bodies are going to wreck whatever the event's supposed to be.
0: Mm -hmm. That's absolutely incredible and seems like exactly what this community really needs. And like you said, there's so much that's out of our control in terms of our body. And that often gets kind of focused on. It's very overwhelming and can be very defeating and a lot for patients to deal with, especially in a system that chronically kind of under-recognizes and under-treats a lot of the issues that hypermobile people have. And it's so great that, you know, you're focused on well, what is within people's control and what can they do? And there is so much, even though it often doesn't feel that way. It's so great that you've, you know, worked to partner with people on their terms to be able to meet them where they're at and teach them these incredible skills. It's just, it's so amazing. Um, And I've been a big admirer of your work and your practice for for such a long time. And I think it fills such a unique need in this community that's just so underserved. So thank you so much for that incredible work. And it's interesting too, that you point out comes to fatigue management, how much hypocrisy there is in the current approach. And I completely agree. There's kind of so much and I hear that this from patients all over the world, there's so much, you know, putting this, the burdens of this condition and the, the difficulties of this condition back on the patients and kind of paying lip service to things like pacing and these things that you're highlighting, but not a lot of actual helpful tips on how to actually do those things. Or like you said, like these really long appointments that drain people further. And there's kind of a lot of impulse, it seems, in especially Western culture to kind of encourage people to push through their symptoms and no pain, no gain, and just to kind of ignore their bodies. And that I think is dangerous for a lot of people, hypermobile, you know, hypermobility regardless, but can be particularly damaging and eventually just stops working for hypermobile people. And then they have like these downturns and stuff. So I think it's so great that you empower people on these number of different fronts to take back some control in their life and live with what they still have, which oftentimes is quite a lot. Zeroing in on the pacing issue, do you have any kind of specific tips that help a lot of people in this population? Or is this something very more individualized that you have to work with people on?
1: If you are quite dedicated and you have a lot of free time, you can now find basically the entirety of my pacing masterclass just available on the internet spread on different people's podcasts and YouTube tutorials and knows what pacing is something that I love talking about because I think the reason so many people struggle with it is because it's taught so badly or not taught at all I think the most common thing I hear is oh my GP says I need to pace myself and when I asked them how to do that they didn't have anything to say so It is very, very frustrating. I think there are a couple of things to consider. And the first one is that if your pacing is making you do less, you are not pacing properly. So all too often we think of pacing as being like, do a thing, have a rest, or you have to give up all of your hobbies if you want to maintain your energy levels. And that's not what this is about. Pacing is about efficiency. So when you are taking breaks, if you wait till your symptoms kick in or start to escalate, and then you take a break, already too late. So at that point, you need quite a long break to recover. Whereas if you proactively stop and take a break, when you still feel fine, you might only need one or two minutes. So with pacing really proactively, what we start to do is reduce the chances of a major crash. So you stop losing like five, six hour blocks or whole days where you're in like human zombie mode. If you can stop those from happening so often or at all, hopefully you've basically able to spread your day out a little bit more effectively. So the modern world is very much set up as boom and bust. So, mm-hmm. you know, even healthy people, long, no, no long-term conditions, will work five days and then crash at the weekend.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or, you know, they work nine to five and then, like, crash at 6 p.m. School is the same. Kids get home and then they'll crash as soon as they're on the door. And it's a really unhealthy kind of setup for the entire world. So pacing isn't just something I teach to people with chronic fatigue and chronic pain. It's something I've taught at like a corporate level to improve workplace efficiency. Do you know? Pacing mm-hmm. is for everyone. So I think my my key kind of strategies are, so activity alternating is a really good one. So rather than do a thing, have a rest. Think about breaking your activities up into key categories. So your physical tasks are maybe uh, walking the dog, cleaning, you know, bending, reaching, standing, any kind of exercise stuff. Parents of young children, there's an awful lot of very physical kind of chasing after the kids, picking stuff up type activities. Anything like that is like a physical thing that goes in the same group. Then you've got your cognitive group. So this is a cognitive activity for me. I am concentrating on what I'm talking, I'm what I'm talking about even. But physically, I'm quite relaxed. I'm in bed. I've got my feet up. It's all good. So, you know, after this, physically speaking, I'm still fine. I just need to not talk and not think and not stare at a screen for a little while. So I may go from this cognitive activity to a physical activity. So I might go and load the dishwasher. And part of what works from a pacing perspective is learning when you can chop and change between different tasks the benefit of this approach is that you can now start cramming in all of those hobbies and interests that you feel like you haven't had time or energy for so after i've loaded the dishwasher i might go and lay down and read a chapter of a book and that will be my physical recovery time but while i'm doing something that i enjoy so alternating between different demands on your body and mind allows you to rest bits of yourself at any one go rather than using all of your skills and all of your functioning up and then doing nothing for a little while.
0: I love. Them, I'm hoping
1: that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, yeah, it
0: absolutely does. I think that's just a brilliant approach, and like you said, is helpful for not only hypermobile people or people with chronic health conditions, but is really globally helpful for all people. And it reminds me, I've I've heard it said that hypermobile people and people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome are kind of the canaries in the coal mine for modern living. That we're just kind of tend to be more sensitive, more affected by the same stressors, you know, environmental, emotional, physical that exist for everyone in the world. And it's beautiful to see when us canaries can kind of sing and tell our story. And I think it's something that can really benefit the entire population, you know, to the extent they're willing to listen, um, which can be kind of a challenge as well. But your approach makes so much sense. And that's something I've certainly found in my own life. And even, you know, thinking about the physical, the cognitive, and then even the emotional demands, like how much certain stressful events, or even positively engaging events can just kind of take a taxing toll on our nervous systems and our bodies. And so I love your approach of kind of breaking things up and taking more conscious control of your life to kind of fit everything in, but maybe in a different order than how we've been kind of raised to look at these things. So I think that's absolutely brilliant. And we'll put links to your other resources where you kind of go into this wonderful masterclass that you've developed over the years in the episode description if people are you know interested in in learning more of the uh, just the specifics but i think it's an absolutely wonderful approach and you know great to see you putting all these tips that you've learned from your schooling and your own personal experience to use you know helping people in a really important way like you said there's lip service often paid in the medical profession to, well, you need to pace yourself. And it's like, well, but how do I do that? And it's like, I don't know, figure it out. So it's great that you're kind of a coach and a partner with people in helping them to to take on these things, which superficially appear very simple, but they're not. They're actually really hard to implement into your everyday life, especially for you know, most people with hypermobility conditions and Ehlers-Danlos connective tissue conditions tend to be diagnosed later in life, Ehlers-Danlos in particular, where they're already kind of into set patterns. And it can be really hard to reimagine and redesign your life in a way that's more fitting with your cognitive and
1: physical abilities. That's that's a major issue I come across an awful lot. So I love the canary analogy, actually, we are canaries except that all of the canaries have had 10 years of medical gaslighting trying to convince Mm -hmm. the canary that it's actually fine, even Mm -hmm. when it isn't, you know, so Mm -hmm. we, one of the major issues with the whole pacing approach for a lot of people is that we have spent every single amount of energy we we've got left for often literally decades, ignoring our symptoms because there's no other option. So you know, micro breaks are another thing that I'm really kind of passionate about talking about. So if you get into the habit of just taking 10 to 30 seconds out of whatever you're doing on a very, very regular basis, and you use those 10 to 30 seconds to give yourself a little MOT, a little tune up, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you too hot? Have you got cramp? When was the last time you ate a vegetable? Have you been to the loo anytime recently? (laughs) All of that stuff you can start to get really proactive about your self care and the only way we can be proactive is if we actually know what we're working with and if that 10 years 20 years 30 years of ignoring your symptoms gets the better of you being actually truly proactive is very very difficult so these little micro breaks are a really good way to actually just check in with your body and see if there's anything you need to deal with before you carry on with your day and they fit in really nicely as well so the last 10 seconds of the microwave counting down or if you have press send on an email press send and you're just waiting for the taskbar to sync so you can do the next thing use that time for something you know self-cary use that time to look after yourself and it's a much better way of cramming self-care into the modern life the modern world rather than having to set aside like big chunks of time to go off and do things to look after yourself. It needs to be integrated or we don't do enough of it.
0: Absolutely. That's such a great tip. Just kind of that checking in with ourselves, seeing how we're doing, almost parenting ourselves in a way that kind of inner child, like you said, are are we hungry? When's the last time we've eaten a vegetable or, you know, done things to take care of ourselves can make just such an important difference. And I would imagine that it kind of looks differently for everyone, like what's restorative to them and what's activating for them. I've started working on putting together playlists of music, you know, songs that help me kind of wind down when I'm a little amped up from a stressful day, or songs that help kind of energize me when I'm, you know, looking to get out of brain fog when I can, that kind of thing. So that's a really important tool. And I, Really enjoy like self massage, like using the Theragun massager or pain creams or like a nice, you know, like skincare product or facial oil, something just like massaging poor, tired temple muscles or something. And it's interesting because I think a lot of us are raised to look at self care or taking care of yourself as a selfish thing and that that being a negative, but it's really not. And taking time to take care of yourself allows there to be more of yourself to be able to do the things you want to do and to be able to serve others and help others' needs. When our tank is empty, we really can't be of much use to anyone, including ourselves. So I think that's that's really, really important.
1: Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I love all of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So what do you see in your practice as some of the biggest obstacles and challenges in the community? And I imagine it's quite varied on an individual level, but do you see kind of trends, um, you know, we've, we've kind of touched on medical gaslighting, which is a you know, huge issue in the community, but do you see other challenges to the community beyond the ones we've kind of talked
1: about already? Oh, how do I narrow this down <laughs> enough that it fits into one discussion? I think one of the major issues is like inflexible structure in places. And actually, weirdly, this is something that was sort of helped by COVID, it was one of the very few silver linings to the pandemic was that people got a bit more flexible with things, so home working or adapted hours, or people were able to kind of do things in their own time a little bit more easily, or do things a little bit more differently. And people got very good at un- expecting that to be an option. And now we're all, you know, various powers that be are trying to backtrack all of these amazing accessible options. So that is a bit of a challenge. And I think particularly for sort of pediatric cases. So for the the hypermobile kids out there, the inflexibility of the schooling system is something that I run headfirst into on a regular basis. Like we're trying to, you know, create these kind of cookie cutter identical children. And if your child doesn't fit the mold, it's just such a difficult situation. So yeah, inflexibility, I think is, is a real struggle. And I think, within healthcare that is definitely the case as well not just for patients but also for staff so I do have quite a lot of patients who are healthcare professionals in their own right and that inflexibility that very structured existence is a problem for them as much as it is for their patients so yeah I think that's probably the biggest one I come up against on a regular basis.
0: Yeah I definitely um, agree and it has been so interesting to see how during the pandemic uh, things got a bit more flexible and then now there's an effort to kind of get people back into the office and undo some of that progress that was made which is very disheartening because it seems to be a win-win for employers too i think there's kind of a myth or a misperception that oh if people aren't in the office they aren't as productive we have to you know keep an eye on them and there has to be a big level of control and it certainly varies profession to profession and at an individual level but It seems that when people have more flexibility in their schedule, um, like speaking to people that have remote work jobs where they can, you know, a lot of people can't do the nine to five, that just doesn't work for a lot of people, but they can still get in or maybe even be more productive. In a lot of cases, I think that's very true when they're able to split up their day, work around symptoms, work around their own burnout, fatigue, cognitive, physical of all different kinds and kind of. Uh, restructure that, and it's it's an interesting concept. This inflexibility, this rigidity in really the world at large, and it's it's just so interesting that you know hypermobile people were were literally more flexible and. I think that flexibility of our tissues contributes to more flexible minds. You know, a lot of us are very creative, very collaborative, kind of outside the box thinkers. And again, you know, if, if there would be more kind of listening to us canaries, I think there would be a lot of elegant solutions and kind of win-wins for a lot of stakeholders involved in this discussion.
1: Yeah, definitely agree. So along with the pandemic, because an awful lot of universities went online, it was the perfect opportunity for me to start my master's. So I went back to university. And the first module I had in person after that, the lecturer was talking about, started the lecture with, isn't it wonderful to be back in the classroom? And everyone was so excited to have got away from online learning. And I just burst into tears. I just couldn't. It was, it was a real kind of emotional moment for me because to get me physically into a classroom had been a never-ending stream of access barriers. I had to have module leads um, on speed dial. I, had, I was on first name terms with the parking team. I, you know, It was just every single thing that could have gone wrong from a physical access perspective went wrong. And it was an early morning, and I had to travel to get there and I had to take time off work and It was just really exhausting, just like physically, emotionally, mentally, in all ways and Everyone was so delighted to be there and It just felt like everything that made university accessible to me had been ripped away in one swift decision mm. um, mm-hmm. and you know this was a this was a team of healthcare professionals, so everyone else on the course was a qualified healthcare professional from all different fields, from different countries, from different backgrounds. And I had a few people come and speak to me afterwards and say, thank you for sharing, because they hadn't really considered the fact that just because going back to work physically made their lives easier, it actually had had a really negative impact on a lot of their chronically ill patients.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it it kind of spurred me to write a blog post after that, that as healthcare professionals, we commit to client-centered practice which is basically a fancy phrase that says the needs of the patient should be considered first and foremost at all times. And if we're doing that, we should be uncomfortable more often than the patient is. And I don't think that's how healthcare is set up at present. So I think it's another one of those lip service things where we say, yes, we're doing client-centered practice, but it's within the bounds of what we're happy to do as healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I say client-centered practice, I think I would push my limits in terms of what I can tolerate an awful lot further to meet the needs of a client than I think a lot of, you know, traditional healthcare would.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you for, you know, sharing your story and your perspective in the blog post and being willing to kind of speak out and advocate for this community, which is so underserved. And, you know, I relate to a lot of what you just said. There are so many physical access barriers for so many of us and just even being able to have the option of participating remotely, you know, we have all this great technology that kind of allows for this. And, you know, I get that there are kind of competing forces and influences at play here. And being in person with other people can be very wonderful when it works out and being able to have that sense of camaraderie and a shared experience. But unfortunately, in this real world that we live in, the access to the barriers and the access to us being able to participate in person physically are so strong and it feels like something's gotta give. Like either we need, you know, massive investment in making the world more accessible to people, or it seems like at the very least, having more flexible options, like allowing people to participate remotely just seems kind of like the easy solution, you know, in the interim while we hopefully work towards a more accessible world, although it kind of doesn't really seem to be going in that direction at the moment. Chronically ill people still have a lot to give and a lot of value, and they're often just dismissed in our society. And that's a real, it's definitely a loss for the people that, you know, are going through chronic illness and chronic conditions. But I think it's a loss for society as a whole because, you know, I've heard the saying, we suffer our way to wisdom. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people in this community who, you know, have been through absolutely incredible suffering, you know, some of the most difficult heartbreaking stories I've heard in my life. But there's a lot of important lessons that come out of that. And if something were to give, you know, society were to become a little bit more physically accessible, or, you know, have more tolerance for these remote work options, it, it really seems like that's really a benefit for all of society.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think the more diverse a workforce you can pull in, the more diverse a range of problem solvers you have. And that's something that we need because life is complicated. So absolutely, I think there is so much wisdom and experience and empathy to be gained from having disabled people, you know, as healthcare professionals, as an example. You know, I've got students coming in on placement on a regular basis. Most of those have a long-term condition of some kind. And to see them thrive on placement with me and to come to the conclusion that their own experiences are actually an asset is a really brilliant thing to do. And we, we need so much more of it. So much more of it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, de- destigmatizing these issues and being able to talk about them openly is so important. And there often is so much kind of shame and, you know, self blame. And I, I think about, you know, Billie Eilish when she came out and talked about her own hypermobility, she talked about the experience of feeling like she was gaslighting herself before her diagnosis. And I related to that concept quite a bit. And I know many others in the community did as well. And, you know, a lot of us are kind of raised to, you know, keep quiet, you know, not to complain. Um, You know, I think, especially as women, but really for all people, um, that's a very common thing. And yet, being able to, you know, open up and talk about these things openly allows us to be able to Work towards solutions and to broaden the perspectives of the world, which is, as we talked about earlier, often kind of a very cookie cutter approach in trying to fit everyone into the same mold, which we just don't. Um, and and that's really. Kind of not working and it's really a shame and on that note i mean you one of the other things that you work on is really teaching people how to advocate for themselves which is such a, a difficult and yet important topic and something that i think also often gets a lot of lip service but not a lot of actual direction in how to do it from all your work with individuals trying to help them to be you know advocates for themselves with all they're going through do you have any tips or guidance that's broadly applicable to the hypermobile population and people with chronic illness in general or do you see it as kind of a more individual thing that you have to work with people on at a more individual level?
1: There are definitely some kind of across the board useful things. One in particular relating to getting good clinical care from your GP or your your primary care person, whoever that is, your your primary doctor you see. The first thing is that an awful lot of people don't go to their doctor with every little thing. We put up with stuff and we bottle things up. And when we get an appointment with a doctor, we will prioritise whatever the top thing is that's currently bothering us. So the challenge for the clinician, for the doctor, is then how does a doctor offer you appropriate advice, appropriate prescriptions, appropriate referrals, when they only know about 20% of what's going on in your life? So... As a clinician, it's it's kind of been quite eye-opening for me and it's made me reevaluate what I do tell my doctor. The amount of times I've spoken to patients and I've said, actually, does your doctor know any of this? Do you know? Do, do they know what's going on in your life, what you're currently struggling with, how severe your pain is? And most of the time the answer is no. So for a lot of people, I will recommend just do a big update. It doesn't you don't need to make an appointment for this. Often if you can Write an email or a letter or literally anything that just, for the attention of your doctor, lays out what's currently going on. And you can state that you don't expect miracle cures, but I think it's really, really important to have a clear documentation trail of what's going on in your life, so that if in the future a miracle cure is created for whatever it is that you're living with, your doctor knows that you might be a candidate for this in advance, but also... Things need taking into account for other reasons. So, you know, being prescribed medications, there are certain medications that interact with others, as an example. So if you're using herbal supplements and your GP doesn't know, there's an awful lot of stuff that can go wrong there, particularly for people who are maybe using less than legal means of managing their pain. Obviously, for some areas, it will be okay. But like cannabis, as an example, a lot of people don't tell their doctor that they're using cannabis for pain relief or mention the fact that they're using legal CBD for pain relief. But there are groups of medications that can quite seriously interact with CBD. So when I talk to patients and they build up that rapport with me and they are confident enough to tell me that they're using cannabis for pain relief, one of the things I always talk about is how are you spacing that out between your prescription medications and does your prescribing clinician know that you're doing this? So part of the self-advocacy thing is to start with, just goes right back to just transparent communication and you you have to give that information over in order to get good care in return obviously it's not a guarantee of good care in return healthcare professionals are people too they've got stuff going on in their own lives they've got their own lack of education or trauma or whatever complex stuff to unpick and as much as we would like to think that the healthcare system is perfect it isn't but at the very least, having a good starting point that gives you an overview of what you're working with is a really good way to kind of get appropriate care. And if you think that you are in a position where you can't advocate for yourself, or you can't communicate clearly what the problem is, write to your GP in advance and say, this is what's going on. I'm going to make an appointment next week, and I would like to discuss it. And then you make an appointment the next week and on that time when you start your appointment on the phone or in person and they say how can i help you start with have i read the, have you read the email and if they haven't read the email you make them read it and just refuse to elaborate until they do because you've gone to the effort of writing all of this down for them that sort of thing i think can be really useful particularly in situations where you're prone to getting maybe very upset or emotional so i really really struggled with self advocacy with dentists because A whole childhood of failed anaesthetics had built up this terror in me of being a dentist. So when it came to self-advocacy, in front of a doctor, I could cite papers, I could bring up academic journals, I could talk about all the different things that I know about. And you face me with a dentist and I would just cry all over them. So you know, the the way that I got over that kind of trauma was to try and build some success stories in. And part of that was finding other ways to communicate my clinical situation so that they've got the right information to start with.
0: That's a great tip. And I think the process of even just writing down what you're going through obviously has that benefit if you're sharing it with a physician that you trust and you're working with. But I find that writing down my experience is also helpful for me to process what I'm going through and kind of realize what I've been through and what I'm experiencing. And that putting pen to page can be just really helpful and therapeutic to kind of make sense of what often feels very senseless. And, you know, thank you for sharing that about your experience with dentistry. I think that's a really common experience for hypermobile people and just for the population at large. And, particularly your experience with failed anesthetics. That's certainly something that I've experienced. And, you know, once I've learned that, you know, lidocaine doesn't really, you know, for a lot of hypermobile people, hypermobile people doesn't help get the same kind of numbness and anesthetic effect as in others and learning about the other classes of anesthetic agents in that family, like bupivacaine. And there's a few other of the canes that seem to be more helpful Um, that's been really, you know, useful information to have. It's still difficult because a lot of places don't stock these alternatives for a number of reasons. But hopefully, you know, slowly with hypermobile people advocating for themselves and with great resources like yourself helping people through this process, hopefully there will be more options in the future to, you know, help people avoid these really painful and traumatic and scary experiences at times. And it's interesting too that you mention about being as honest as you can be in a very difficult world filled with complicated laws about what substances people are using, um, because there can be these interactions and having things that are legally tricky for one way or another can be really difficult because then. There can be a lack of kind of appropriate communication about really important topics like, you know, what's your overall medication regimen? what's your, What are you taking and why and how could they be interacting with each other? And it, it reminds me of this story I read a few years ago about this uh, mummified remains that were found in the uh, Eurasian uh, steppes region. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing steppes, right? It's spelled S-T-E-P-P-E-S she's called the siberian ice maiden and it's this scytho siberian woman so i think this is related to the ancient scythians who were the first recorded instance of hypermobility in history and so she's this 2500-year-old siberian woman that was found and she was found with cannabis and opium on her remains like when she was buried and uh, i think they found out that she had a broken leg and it was maybe dealing with breast cancer and so they were saying that she was probably treating her chronic pain with these um, substances and it just was so fascinating kind of this link through history and this potential link to hypermobility as well with the you know ancient Scythians and thinking about how you know a substance like cannabis has literally been used for millennia by humans to treat their pain and yet in the modern world it's so stigmatized and there's all these kind of issues around it and so it can be interesting to kind of look at the past for references to kind of humanity and where are we and how do we get here kind of thing and on that note I know that you're you know very interested in looking at the past and different approaches to medicine um, and you have sort of a special interest in looking at like Viking culture I guess would you you know care to speak to that interest at all or kind of what you've learned in that that kind of educational pursuit um, and practice that you have?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a Viking reenactor. Um, a lot of that for me is less about like combat displays and more about arts and crafts. There are members in my group who very much enjoy beating each other up with swords and axes, but that's that's not me. I'm here for the arts and crafts, really. But my one of my interests within that has been looking at Dark Age medicine. So I've been going through, I call it leech books, but basically Saxon medical texts. That were written down by um, a collective of monks who basically traveled around speaking to wise women, healers, you know, family recipes, budding physicians type thing, and just recording all of these different remedies and these different approaches to managing a really wide range of conditions. And it's fascinating because so much of it is based around just the understanding that magic exists, it just does. So you can do absolutely all of the right things, medically speaking. But if magically speaking, somebody has it in for you, or spiritually speaking, the gods aren't on your side, tough luck. And it's just this really kind of fascinating idea that a person's personality and their beliefs and their values are intrinsically entwined with their overall health. And we think of that as being like a modern spin on medicine, like looking at client-centered practice. And we're looking at people's belief that if they want to get better they will actually get better and we think of these as new concepts but they're really really not they are very very old concepts that we sort of forgot about for a couple of hundred years and are now bringing back in so yeah it does it really interests me the you know the remedies for things and when you look at the actual evidence behind some of these herbal remedies some of them there's a decent evidence base behind Others you look at and think, you know, there's a a very, very decent chance that that could have killed somebody quite easily. But, yeah, so it's a real interesting split between things that are actually very effective and potentially very useful and things that I would not do to my worst enemy. Because (laughs) there's just no way it's going to do you any good. Mm -hmm. But there's a particularly interesting one. And the original recipe, i just see if I can dredge this out of my memory accurately. The original recipe was for treating like a sty or like an eye infection, I think. And it was garlic, leeks, honey and cow's bile, I think, mixed in a copper bowl and then kind of applied to the area. And a university lab tested this and it beat MRSA in lab testing. Wow. So some of this stuff is worth looking at. There's, you know, answers in the past that have been really, really useful to what we could be doing medicine now, especially in an age of massive antibiotic resistance, medication intolerances, allergies, people building up a tolerance to all the different kind of drugs out there. Maybe looking backwards is the way we should be going. But it has definitely changed what I keep in my first aid kit in terms of, you know, so yeah, um, things like honey, I always have honey in my first aid kit now. And it's, it's such a brilliant kind of antibacterial, antimicrobial kind of healing promoting thing that yeah, it it doesn't live in the breakfast kind of food cabinet anymore. It's in the first aid kit. That's
0: absolutely fascinating. And Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, that's it's definitely an interest of mine, digging into herbal remedies. There's a great book on connective tissue disorders. It's written by this woman. I think her first name is Hannelore. Um, I might be saying that wrong, but Hannelore Helping, I think might be her name. But I found it on Amazon a few years ago. And it was a woman who compiled a lot of information on how to treat various aspects of connective tissue conditions by using different herb supplements. Um, And that was kind of my window into this topic. And I've, you know, since found some herbs that have been really helpful, like lemon balm, I found really relaxing, makes a great tea. Um, Lemon verbena too, I think is really high in some antioxidants. And then honey, like you mentioned, yeah, honey is just an incredible substance, really durable, seems to last a really long time. I think I've heard that it can't expire, like it just crystallizes kind of over time. I'm not sure if that's exactly true. But it certainly, you know, holds up a long time and it's just delicious. And so being able to kind of work it into different teas and realizing its medicinal properties and that's fascinating about that ancient remedy being studied and holding up so well against MRSA, which is, you know, a really difficult and challenging thing, which is kind of perplexed people in the medical field for a long time. So I completely agree. I think sometimes we need to look back and see where we've been to be able to move forward. And it's, it's so unfortunate how much of that knowledge has been lost through things like the witch hunts and kind of a lot of this knowledge has been either lost or kind of rejected for one reason or another. And so I think it's wonderful that you're kind of looking back, and it, it just sounds so fun to do these Viking reenactments too, and and to focus on the arts and crafts sides uh, side of it. That's something I've recently gotten interested in, looking at Viking history after watching some of the Viking shows that are on the streaming services, and just realizing how kind of complex the culture was. We're often taught this version of viking history that they were all just sort of brutish conquerors and bloodthirsty or you know whatever but it seems to be a very complex society with a, a lot of very sophisticated farming and you know a, a legal structure a writing system this kind of emphasis on an oral history and having like a, an oral historian in the community who would kind of be the repository of stories and I just think of how much that's in contrast to this modern society where so much is text-based and, you know, everything on social media kind of lives forever. And just thinking about that kind of a different approach to life can be helpful to kind of open one's mind and realize that things that feel very set in stone and part of our so-called modern life are really just kind of their own constructions. And there really are alternative ways of looking at things, which, and, and like you said, it can be things that are great, you know, remedies that really stand the test of time and hold up and, you know, some stuff in the past, uh, certainly, Eyebrow raising, like you said, like you wouldn't want to, you know, use on a worst enemy kind of thing, like really um, stuff that doesn't work. So being able to kind of revisit the past with an open mind and integrate modern knowledge and expertise with some of the wisdom of the past just seems really incredible. So yeah, thanks for sharing about that. Thank you. Well, it was so lovely speaking with you today, Joe. Uh, any kind of parting thoughts you'd like to uh, leave our audience with before we uh, close? I think.
1: I'll- finish with what i've so often said to people and it that is that i would like people to break the connection between disability and quality of life so there seems to be this belief that the the more severely impacted by something the more it's going to wreck your life and i really i really want to break that association because i think one of the things i love about being an occupational therapist is being able to help people improve their quality of life regardless of whether we can have an impact on symptoms so Yeah, the right self-management can be life-changing and it can allow you to do things that you did not think were possible. So don't let kind of disability and exhaustion and pain convince you that quality of life is unattainable. You maybe just haven't found exactly the right combination of people, equipment, strategies and skills just yet. So keep looking and have hope. I
0: love that. That's really a beautiful sentiment. Yeah, hope can be hard to come by in this community, but it's incredibly inspiring to see the work of people like yourself. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and thank you for all of our listeners for joining us. As always, feel free to reach out and email us if you have any feedback, suggestions for future guests, or if you'd just like to chat, the email address is hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. Thanks so much again to Joe Saltho for joining us today. And like I said, we'll include links in the description to her website and social media pages. And thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely.